0: Michael, Michael, thank you so much, and it's a tremendous pleasure to be with you all and celebrating the return of so many Oxonians and Antonians to the university. I'm particularly glad to see the Kenny's here because I know that Nancy Kenny's played such an important role in making the alumni weekend such a successful part of the Oxford calendar, and looking at the turnout this year, I can see, Nancy, that the fruit of your efforts is very evident in 2014. It's true. I have another book coming out. And, in a totally uncynical way, I chose to write on the First World War. The title of my lecture is to bring us to the Ottoman Front, and examines the First World War in the Middle East. And I'd like to begin on a personal note. Uh, Lance Corporal John MacDonald died at Gallipoli on June 28, 1915. He was 19 years old, and though he wasn't to know it, he was also my great uncle. Nothing in his life would have prepared John MacDonald for death in faraway lands. He was born in a small Scottish village near Perth and attended the Dollar Academy where he met his best friend Charles Beveridge. They left school together at 14 to look for work. They moved to Glasgow where they found jobs with the North British Locomotive Company. And when war broke out in Europe in the summer of 1914, Beveridge and MacDonald enlisted together with the Scottish rifles, also known as the Cameroonians. The impatient recruits found themselves, in months of training across the autumn of 1914, envious of the battalions that had preceded them off to the front in Western Europe. It was only in April of 1915 that the 1st 8th Battalion were called into service, not in France, but in Ottoman Turkey. MacDonald and Beveridge said their final farewell to friends and family on the 17th of May, 1915, when they boarded ship to set off for war. They sailed for the Greek island of Lemnos, which served as a staging post for British and allied forces before deployment to Gallipoli. As they drew into the island's deepwater port of Mudros on May 29th, one month after the original Gallipoli landings, they passed a vast armada of warships and transports lying at anchor. The young recruits would have been awestruck by the dreadnoughts and super-dreadnoughts, some of the greatest ships afloat. Many bore the marks of heavy fighting, their hulls and their funnels holed by the artillery that they had encountered in the Dardanelles. The Scots had two weeks to acclimatize to the eastern Mediterranean summer before going into battle. In mid-June, they sailed out of Mudros Harbor, cheered by soldiers and sailors from the decks of the ships at anchor. Only those who had been to Gallipoli, and knew what lay before the fresh-faced recruits, refrained from cheering. As one Cameronian recalled, to a shipload of Australians sick and wounded, some of our fellows yelled out the stock phrase at the time, are we downhearted? No. And when some Australian wag shouted back, we well, damn well soon will be. <laughs> our chaps, though taken aback entirely incredulous. On June 14, the entire battalion was safely ashore. Four days later, the eight Scottish rifles moved up Gully Ravine to the front line. Under the relentless machine gun and artillery fire for which Gallipoli was already notorious, the Cameroonians suffered their first casualties in the trenches. By the time the Scottish rifles were given their orders to attack Turkish positions, the men had lost their boyish enthusiasm. As one officer reflected, whether it was premonition or merely the strain of newly acquired responsibility, I could not feel the buoyancy of success among the soldiers. The British attack on June 28 was preceded by two hours of bombardment from the sea. Eyewitnesses dismissed the shelling as ineffectual, far too little to drive the determined Ottoman defenders from their defensive positions. The assault began on schedule, nonetheless at 1,100 hours. As on the Western Front, men climbed out of the trenches to the shrill signal of whistles. When the Cameroonians went over the top, they faced the full fire of Ottoman soldiers who held their positions undeterred by the bombardment they'd received from Allied ships. Within five minutes, the first eight Scottish rifles were practically wiped out. John John MacDonald died of his wounds in a camp hospital and was later buried in the Lancaster Landing Cemetery. Charles Beveridge, his best friend, fell beyond the reach of stretcher bearers. His remains were only recovered after the 1918 armistice, when his bones were indistinguishable from those of the men among whom he fell. He lies in a mass grave, his name engraved on the great monument at Cape Hellas. The fate of the Cameronians brought shock and grief to their friends and families in Scotland. The Dollar Academy published obituaries of John MacDonald and Charles Beveridge in the autumn issue, in the autumn issue of the school's quarterly magazine. The magazine described the two young men as the best of friends. Quote, they worked together, lived together in rooms, enlisted together, and in death they were not divided. Both were young men of sterling character, the obituary concluded, well worthy of the positions they held. And the magazine went on to express sympathy for the bereaved parents of the two boys. In fact, the grief was really more than my grandparents could bear. One year after the death of their only son, the McDonald's took the extraordinary step of leaving wartime Scotland to emigrate to the United States. In July 1916, they boarded the poignantly named SS Cameroonia with two of their daughters for New York City. They left one daughter behind. They never returned. The family ultimately settled in Oregon, where my maternal grandmother later married and gave birth to my mother and uncle. They and all their descendants, me included, owe their lives to John MacDonald's premature death. Now, my personal connection to the First World War is hardly unique. A 2013 poll conducted in the UK by the YouGov Agency found that 46% of Britons knew of a family or community member who had served in the Great War. Such personal connections explain the enduring fascination the war holds over so many of us a century after its outbreak. The sheer scale of the mobilization and of the carnage left very few families untouched in those countries caught up in the conflict. And if I were just to ask the room to raise hands if any of you know of anyone who served in or died in the First World War, I think you're probably in line with British government polling or beyond. I came to learn my great uncle's history while preparing for a trip to Gallipoli in 2005. Accompanied by my mother and my son Richard, three generations of us went to pay our respects, his first family visitors in over nine decades. As we made our way down the twisted lanes of the Gallipoli Peninsula towards the Lancashire Landing Cemetery, we took a wrong turn. We landed upon the Nuri Yamut Monument, which is a monument dedicated to the Turkish war dead of the 28th of June the same battle in which John Macdonald and Charles Beveridge had died. The monument to the Turkish war dead of what they called the Battle of Ziindere, or Gully Ravine, came as a total revelation to me. While my great uncle's unit had suffered over 1,400 casualties, more than half its total strength, and British losses overall reached 3,800, as many as 14,000 Ottoman soldiers fell dead and wounded in that single engagement. The Nuriyamut Monument is a mass grave of those Ottoman soldiers interred under a common headstone inscribed simply or martyrdom, 1915. All the books that I'd read on the Cameroonians had treated the terrible waste of British life on the day that my great uncle had died. But none of the English accounts had mentioned the thousands of Turkish war dead. It was sobering to realize that the number of bereaved Turkish families would have so far outstripped the numbers in Scotland. I came away from Gallipoli struck by how little we in the West know about the Turkish and Arab experience of the Great War. The scores of books published in English on the different Middle Eastern fronts reflect British or Allied experiences. Gallipoli was Churchill's debacle. Kota was Townshend's surrender. The Arab revolt was led by Lawrence of Arabia. It was Maud's entry to Baghdad and Allenby's entry into Jerusalem. Social historians keen to break with the official history's top-down approach probed the experience of common soldiers by tapping into diaries and letters held in private paper archives in places like London's Imperial War Museum or Canberra's Australian War Monument, Wellington's Alexander Turnbull Library, and our own Middle East Centre Archive. After a century of research, we have a comprehensive view of the Allied side of the trenches. But we're only just beginning to come to terms with the other side of the trenches, the experiences of Ottoman soldiers caught up in a desperate struggle for survival against powerful invaders. Now, it's actually quite difficult to approach the Great War from the Ottoman front. While there are dozens of diaries and memoirs published in Turkey and in the Arab world, few Western historians have the language skills to read these books and only a fraction of these primary sources have been published in English or French translations. Archival materials are even harder to access. The Turkish Military and Strategic Studies Archive in Ankara holds the largest collection of primary materials on the First World War in the Middle East. Yet access to ATASE as it's known by its Turkish acronym is strictly controlled with researchers required to pass a security clearance that can take months and is often declined with no grounds. Large parts of the collection are closed to researchers who face restrictions on copying materials. They basically have to write down whatever limited materials they are allowed to view without photocopying. There are, however, a number of Turkish and Western scholars who have gained access to this valuable collection and are beginning to publish important secondary sources on the Ottoman experience of the Great War. Elsewhere in the Middle East, national archives, where they exist, were established well after the conflict and so don't place particular emphasis on the First World War. Neglect of the First World War in Arab archives is reflected in Arab society at large. Unlike in Turkey, where the Gallipoli battlefield is punctuated with Turkish monuments, and memorial celebrations are held each year, there are no real war memorials in the Arab world. Though nearly every modern Arab state was drawn into the Great War, and the list is just remarkable. Right across North Africa, uh, certainly every country in French North Africa contributed troops. Libya was a battlefield. Egypt was a battlefield. If You go through Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Palestinian Authority territories, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Turkey. It's really hard to think of a part of the Middle East untouched by the conflict. But the war is remembered as, well, someone else's war. Though All these countries in the Middle East were caught up in it. They didn't see it as their war. It was a time of suffering inflicted on the Arab people by the failing Ottoman Empire and its rash young Turk leadership. In the Arab world, the Great War only left martyrs, particularly the Arab nationalists hanged by Jamal Pasha in Beirut and Damascus, but no heroes. So it's time to restore the Ottoman front to its rightful place, both in the history of the Great War and in the history of the modern Middle East. For it was the Ottoman entry into the war, more than any other event, that turned Europe's conflict into a world war. Unlike the relatively minor skirmishes in the Far East and in East Africa, major battles were fought across the four full years of World War I in the Middle East. Moreover, the Middle Eastern battlefields were often the most international battlefields of the war. Australians and New Zealanders, every ethnicity of South Asia, North Africans, Senegalese, and Sudanese made common cause with French, English, Welsh, Scottish, and Irish soldiers against the Turkish, Arab, Kurdish, Armenian, and Circassian combatants in the Ottoman army and their German and Austrian allies. The Ottoman front was a veritable Tower of Babel, an unprecedented conflict between international armies. You want world war? Go to the Ottoman front. Most Entente war planners dismissed the Ottoman Empire, as a sideshow to the main theaters of the war on the Western and Eastern fronts. Influential Britons like Kitchener and Churchill only lobbied to take the war to the Turks in the mistaken belief that this would provide the Allies with a quick victory against the central powers that would hasten the end of the war. In this calculus, of course, the war planners were tragically mistaken. Allied failures on the Ottoman front provoked grave political crises at home. The foundering Dardanelles campaign forced the British Liberal Prime Minister Asquith into a coalition government with the Conservatives in May of 1915 and contributed to Asquith's downfall the following year. British wartime defeats in Gallipoli and in Mesopotamia led to two separate parliamentary commissions of inquiry whose reports were equally damning of political and military decision makers. So the Great War made itself felt in every aspect of the British and European experience and contributed enormously to the globalizing of that conflict. In the end, the Ottoman front proved more influential on the First World War than contemporaries ever imagined it would. Allied war planners, as I said, believing a quick victory over the weak Ottoman Empire might precipitate the central power's surrender, found themselves drawn into a series of very intense campaigns that lasted nearly the full length of the war. The battles in the Caucasus and Persia, the failed attempts to force the Dardanelles, the reversals in Mesopotamia, and the long campaign through Sinai, Palestine, and Syria diverted hundreds of thousands of men and strategic war material away from the primary theaters of operation on the western and eastern fronts. Rather than hastening the end of the conflict, the Ottoman Front served to lengthen the war, and to lengthen the war significantly. Much of the Allied war effort in the Middle East was driven by what proved to be an unwarranted fear of jihad. While colonial Muslims remained largely unresponsive to the Ottoman Sultan Caliph's appeal, the European imperial powers continued to assume that any major Turkish victory in the battlefield might provoke the sort of long-dreaded Islamic uprising in their colonies in India or Egypt or in North Africa. Ironically, this left the Allies even more receptive to the sultan's call for jihad than the international Muslim community. And even a century later, the Western world has yet to shake off this belief that Muslims might act in a collectively fanatical manner. As the post-September 11, 2001 war on terrorism has demonstrated, Many Western policymakers continue to view jihad in terms reminiscent of the war planners of 1914 1918. The First World War was itself tremendously influential in the making of the modern Middle East. With the fall of the Ottoman Empire, Turkish rule was replaced by European imperialism. After four centuries of being part of a multinational empire under Ottoman Muslim rule, the Arabs found themselves divided into a number of new states under British and French domination. A few countries achieved independence within frontiers of their own drafting. Turkey, Iran, and Saudi Arabia stand out in this sense. But most of the states in the region, however, had their borders and their system of government imposed by the imperial powers very much as a consequence of the fall of the Ottomans. The post-war partition of the Ottoman Empire was a subject of intense negotiations between the allies that ran the length of the war and in hindsight, each of these partition agreements really only makes sense when viewed within their wartime context. The Constantinople Agreement in 1915 is not so well known to you. But it was when the Allies began discussion of how to partition a defeated Ottoman Empire. And it was when Russia really staked its claim to Constantinople and the Straits of the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles. So that happened when the Allies anticipated the quick conquest of Istanbul on the eve of the Dardanelles campaign. The Hussein McMahon correspondence is probably better known to you. 1915, 1916 took place when the British really felt they needed the Muslim ally against the Ottoman jihad accelerated by their setbacks in the Dardanelles and in Mesopotamia. The Balfour Declaration in 1917, when the British wanted to revise the terms of the Sykes-Picot Agreement to secure Palestine for British rule, was only pronounced on the eve of the fall of Jerusalem, and at a time where British forces were rapidly making their way through Palestine, where I think Britain began to see the future terms of Palestine as something of which they would have far more control. These outlandish agreements, which were only conceivable in wartime, were concluded solely to advance Britain and France's imperial expansion. And I think any explanation that tries to tell you that they were advocates of Arab nationalism or Jewish nationalism misses the wartime context entirely. It is hard to imagine that the British would have openly advocated Arab nationalism or Jewish nationalism absence of a great war. And had the European powers been concerned with establishing a stable Middle East, one can't help but think that they would have gone about the business of nation formation after the fall of the Ottoman Empire in a very different way. By October 1918, after four years of relentless hardship and suffering, the Ottomans lost the Great War. It was a national catastrophe, but it wasn't so unprecedented. Arguably, since 1699, the Ottomans had lost most of the great wars that they had fought, and still the empire had survived. Yet never had the Ottomans faced such a constellation of interests as they did in negotiating the peace after the Great War. Caught between the conflicting demands of the victorious powers and Turkish nationalists, it was the terms of the peace, even more than the magnitude of the defeat, that led to the fall of the Ottomans. There was nothing the Ottomans could do to soften the terms the Allies would impose in the Paris Peace Conference. From the very outset of the war, as we've already noted, Britain, France, and Russia had negotiated the future partition of Ottoman domains. Though Russia had retracted its claims after the Bolshevik Revolution, new allies had taken its place. Italy and Greece, both relative latecomers to the Great War, Italy declared war on Turkey in August 1915 and Greece only in June of 1917, proved no less avid to acquire Ottoman territory than the Tsar's government had been at the start of the war. In April 1919, the Italians landed troops in the Mediterranean port of Antalya, and on May 15, Greek forces occupied the port of Smyrna or Izmir. When the Ottoman delegation appeared before the Supreme Council of the Paris Peace Conference in June 1919, they could have little confidence of a sympathetic hearing. Of course, looming over everything the Ottomans said was the atrocities of the Armenian Genocide. But appealing to President Wilson's principles, the 12th of Wilson's famous 14 points, called for a secure sovereignty for the Turkish portion of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman delegation set out their vision for the post-war Ottoman Empire. In essence, they sought to retain all territory within their October 1914 frontiers, divided between areas of direct Turkish rule in Anatolia and Thrace, and autonomous zones with a higher degree of local rule under the Ottoman flag, in the Arab provinces and in the disputed Aegean Islands. Quoting from their memo, they concluded Nobody in Turkey is unaware of the gravity of the moment. The ideas of the Ottoman people, however, are well defined. It will not accept the dismemberment of the empire or its division into different mandates. Five days after the Ottoman delegation submitted its memorandum, the Allies and Germany signed the Treaty of Versailles on June 28, 1919, and the treaty set a very high benchmark for the harsh terms the victorious powers would impose on the defeated central powers. Germany was forced to accept responsibility for the loss and damage caused by the war. Its military was to undergo disarmament. It faced substantial territorial losses in excess of 25,000 square miles, and Germany was ordered to pay unprecedented reparations in excess of 31 billion U.S. dollars. The terms dealt the other defeated powers were hardly less draconian. The peace with Austria, signed at Saint-Germain-en-Laye in September 1919, imposed the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, forced Austria to accept responsibility for causing the war, imposed heavy reparations, and distributed Austrian territory to a number of successor states. In November 1919, the Allies signed the Treaty of Neuilly-sur-Seine with Bulgaria, remembered in national histories as the second national catastrophe, the first having been the Second Balkan War when they lost Adirne. The treaty forced Bulgaria to cede territory in western Thrace that was ultimately awarded to Greece. And on its western frontiers, it lost territory and left the country saddled with 100 million pounds in reparations. The peace treaty with Hungary signed at the Trianon on the 4th of June 1920 reduced the Hungarian lands of the former Austro-Hungarian Empire to 28% of its pre-war size and left the landlocked state saddled with massive reparation bills. So there was little reason to expect that the Ottoman Empire would face more generous terms than its wartime allies. In fact, the Treaty of Versailles incorporated the covenant of the League of Nations Giving the sanction of international law to a mandate system designed expressly to allow for the partition of the Ottoman Empire. Article 22 of the covenant read, certain communities formal, formerly belonging, belonging to the Turkish Empire have reached a stage of development where their existence as independent nations can be provisionally recognized, subject to the rendering of administrative assistance and advice by a mandatory until such time as they are able to stand alone. So that was already, as it were, written into the terms of international law, even before the Ottomans got the terms of their own dismember delivered to them. After the Turkish delegation returned to Istanbul, the victorious powers engaged in their last round of final negotiations of how to divvy up the lands of the Ottoman Empire. The prime ministers of Great Britain, France, and Italy met in the Italian resort of San Remo, in April of 1920 to resolve the contradictions between the Hussein McMahon correspondence, the Sykes-Picot Accord, and the Balfour Declaration. Once the Allies had agreed on the partition of the Arab lands, they then turned to finalize the terms with the Ottoman Empire. The terms first shared with the port in May of 1920 could not have been worse for the Turks. In addition to transferring all of the Arab provinces to European mandatory control, The draft peace agreement called for the partition of Anatolia and the distribution of territories within Turkish-majority populations among the former subject peoples and hostile neighbors. Eastern Anatolia was to be divided between the Armenians and the Kurds. The northeastern provinces of Trabzon, Erzurum, Bitlis, and Van were designated an Armenian sphere of influence. These four provinces enjoyed full freedom under American arbitration, to secede from the Ottoman Empire and join the new Armenian Republic in the Caucasus with its capital at Yerevan. The Kurds were offered a smaller territory on the southern frontiers of the Armenian zone, based around the town of Diyarbakir. Under the terms of the treaty, the Kurds, too, were given full freedom to secede from the Ottoman Empire and to establish an independent state. In western Anatolia, the port city of Smyrna, modern Izmir, and its hinterlands were to be placed under Greek administration. The government of Greece was instructed to assist the local Greek community to elect a local parliament that would enjoy the authority to legislate Smyrna's future union with the kingdom of Greece. So the formula was already built in to separate out Western Anatolia for union with the kingdom of Greece. Most of Turkish Thrace, including the city of Adirne, that the Ottomans had lost in the First Balkan War and had recovered in the Second Balkan War, was also ceded to the Greeks. The of course, is Adrianople in Byzantine times. The Ottomans even lost control over the strategic waterways linking the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. The Bosphorus, the Dardanelles, the Sea of Marmara, were to be placed under an international commission that Turkey would only be allowed to join if and when it was admitted to the League of Nations. The partition of Anatolia did not end there. By separate agreement concluded between the British, French, at Italians, the Mediterranean regions of Anatolia were to be divided between the French and Italians. The Cilician coast, reaching deep inland to the inland city of Sivas, was designed, or was designated, a French sphere of influence. Italian claims to southwest Anatolia, including the port of Antalya and the inland city of Konya, were also recognized. Though nominally still part of the Ottoman Empire, Turkey's Mediterranean coast would effectively fall under informal French or Italian colonial rule. The peace treaty left very little Ottoman territory to the Turks. The Ottoman Empire was effectively reduced to those parts of central Anatolia that nobody else wanted. Bursa, Ankara, and Samsun on the Black Sea coast, with Istanbul as its capital and even Istanbul was only awarded to the Turks on sufferance. If the Ottomans failed to uphold their treaty commitments, the Allies threatened to retract the award of Constantinople to the post-war Turkish state. As you can imagine, the terms of the settlement provoked widespread opposition across the Ottoman Empire. The presence of foreign armies on Turkish soil already had engendered profound resentment. In May 1919, Mustafa Kemal Pasha, the hero of Gallipoli and of many other campaigns in the First World War, clearly at this point, Turkey's most respected military leader, had been sent to Samsun to oversee the demobilization of Ottoman troops um, in line with the terms of the armistice. Following the Italian and Greek occupations of Cilicia and Izmir in April and May 1919, Mustafa Kemal decided to disobey orders. Rather than demobilize the army, he chose to mount a resistance movement against the invasion of Anatolia instead. He established his base in the central Anatolian town of Ankara, where the Turkish national movement he launched increasingly rivaled the Ottoman government in Istanbul in representing the political aspirations of the Turkish people. Between July and September 1919, the Turkish national movement convened two congresses in Erzurum and Sivas that set out their principles in a document known as the National Pact the National Pact sought to reconcile a, quote, just and lasting peace with a stable Ottoman Sultanate through a clear statement of principles. The framers of the National Pact accepted the loss of the Arab provinces. They were open to arrangements to ensure free navigation through the Straits. But they ruled out any partition of those territories which are inhabited by an Ottoman Muslim majority, united in religion, in race and in name, claiming that those territories form a whole which does not admit of division for any reason. In one of its final sessions, the Ottoman parliament in Istanbul threw in its lot with the Turkish National Movement in Ankara and adopted the National Pact by overwhelming majority in January 1920. However popular the National Pact was with parliamentarians, The port viewed the Turkish national movement in central Anatolia as a dangerous threat to its authority. In the national crisis that followed the release of the Allied peace terms in May 1920, the Ottoman government believed it had no choice but to cooperate with the victorious powers. By accepting the victorious powers' harsh terms in the short run, the port hoped to secure better terms in the long run. The Turkish national movement, on the other hand, believed the Ottomans would never recover the territory or the sovereignty that they signed away in the peace treaty. Mustafa Kemal and his partisans called for the rejection of the draconian terms and resistance to any partition of Anatolia. The port believed the course of confrontation advocated by Mustafa Kemal and the Turkish na- national movement, given the shattered state of the Ottoman army and the ruined economy, would lead to nothing short of catastrophe. Resistance might even cost the Ottomans their capital city, Istanbul, which, under the terms of the peace treaty, could be withdrawn if they did not comply with the terms overall. The Ottoman government charged Mustafa Kemal and several other nationalist leaders with high treason in May 1920. And the hero of Gallipoli was sentenced to death in absentia. As we know, history was to prove the Grand Vizier and his government wrong. Only resistance to the peace treaty could preserve a Turkish state within its Anatolian frontiers, and Mustafa Kemal certainly was no traitor. A committed Ottomanist, Mustafa Kemal, had framed his every act in terms of preserving the Ottoman state. The National Pact even used the word Ottoman rather than Turk to describe the nation. The breaking point for the Kemalists came when the Ottoman government committed the Turkish nation to the draconian peace and the partition of Anatolia under foreign occupation. In signing the Treaty of Sèvres on August 10, 1920, the port provoked an irreconcilable split with the Turkish national movement. From that date forward, the Kemalists worked to bring down both the treaty and the Ottoman government that had signed it. By 1922, after an intense war fought on three fronts, against the Armenians in the Caucasus, against the French in Cilicia, and the Greeks in Western Anatolia, The Kemalists achieved total victory over all foreign armies in Turkey. After concluding an armistice with Greece in October 1922, the Turkish Grand National Assembly voted to abolish the Ottoman Sultanate on the 1st of November. After only four years on the throne, Mehmed VI, who succeeded his half-brother Mehmed V in July 1918, he died actually before the end of the war, the last Ottoman Sultan was sent into exile aboard a british warship bound for malta on the 17th of november in july 1923 the nationalist government in turkey signed a new treaty with the victorious powers in lausanne switzerland the only of the defeated central powers to actually renegotiate the terms of the peace with the victorious powers the treaty of lausanne recognized turkish independence more or less within its present boundaries it actually grew when france ceded the uh, Iskandarun and alexandretta territories Uh, to Turkey uh, from the French mandate in Syria. source of some grievance to Syrians down to the present, but that's not for today's lecture. (laughs) On the strength of that international recognition, the Turkish Republic was proclaimed on October 29, 1923, with Mustafa Kemal as a new country's first president. The Turkish parliament later awarded Mustafa Kemal the surname Ataturk, literally the father of the Turks, in recognition of his leadership in the creation of the modern Turkish Republic. But here's the trick. Had the sultan's government harnessed Atatürk's movement and resisted the terms imposed by the victorious powers at Sevres, the Ottoman Empire might very well have survived within the boundaries of the modern Turkish state. However catastrophic their defeat in the Great War, it was acceptance of the Draconian peace that led to the fall of the Ottomans. Now, the borders of the post-war settlement have proven remarkably resilient as had the conflicts that these post-war boundaries engendered. A few examples. The Kurdish people found themselves divided between Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria, and had been embroiled in conflict with each of their host governments over the past century in pursuit of their cultural and political rights. Lebanon, created by France as a Christian state in 1920, has succumbed to a string of civil wars as its political institutions failed to keep up with its demographic changes and Muslims came to outnumber Christians in the erstwhile Christian state. Syria, unreconciled to the creation of Lebanon from what many Syrian nationalists believe to be an integral part of their country, sent its military to occupy civil war Lebanon in 1976. They were to remain nearly three decades. Despite its natural and human resources, Iraq has never known enduring peace within its mandate boundaries. Coup and conflict with Britain in World War II, revolution in 1958, war with Iraq between 1980 and 1988, and a seemingly unending cycle of war since Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in 1990 and the 2003 American invasion of Iraq to topple Saddam Hussein. But it's the Arab-Israeli conflict, more than any other legacy of the post-war partition, that has defined the Middle East as a war zone. (coughs) Four major wars between Israel and its Arab neighbors in 1948, in 1956, in 1967, and in 1973 have left the Middle East with a number of intractable problems that remain resolved despite peace treaties between Israel and Egypt signed in 1979 and between Israel and Jordan in 1994. Palestinian refugees remain scattered between Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. Israel continues to occupy the Syrian Golan Heights and the Shebaa farms in South Lebanon, And Israel has yet to relinquish its control over the Palestinian territories in Gaza and the West Bank. Now, while Israel and its Arab neighbors share primary responsibility for their actions over the past century, the roots of their conflict can be traced directly back to the fundamental contradictions of the post-war partition. The legitimacy of Middle Eastern frontiers has been called into question since they were first drafted. Arab nationalists in the 1940s and 50s openly called for unity schemes that would have overthrown boundaries widely discredited as an imperialist legacy. Pan-Islamists have advocated a broader Islamic union with the same goal. And as recently as last summer, in 2014, a militia calling itself the Islamic State tweeted to its followers that it was smashing Sykes-Picot when it declared a caliphate in territory spanning northern Syria and Iraq. So one century later, the borders of the Middle East remain controversial and volatile. But as I said before, the centenary of the Great War attracts little commemoration in the Middle East. Aside from Gallipoli, where every year, Turkish and Anzac veteran associations gather to remember their war dead in a spirit of almost singular fraternity across former enemy lines. The struggles and sacrifices of the global armies who fought in the Ottoman front have been superseded by more pressing contemporary concerns. Revolutionary turmoil in Egypt, Civil war in Syria and Iraq. And enduring violence between Israelis and Palestinians preoccupied the Middle East on the 100th anniversary of the start of the Great War. And as the war is remembered in the rest of the world, the part the Ottomans played in that conflict must be taken into account. For it was the Ottoman front with its Asian battlefields and global soldiers that turned Europe's Great War into the First World War. And the consequences of that war still resonate in the modern Middle East today. Thank you. Thank you.